Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're pleased to have with us the winner of the latest May Swenson Poetry Award. That's M.B. McClatchy. And the uh, title of the collection is The Lame God. And uh, M.B. McClatchy holds degrees in comparative uh, literature and languages and teaching in English literature from Harvard University, Brown University, and Williams College, as well as an MFA in creative writing from Goddard College. Interestingly, she has worked also in her career as a speechwriter for a state senator, a reporter for daily newspaper, as a magazine editor, reader and book reviewer, and teaches now at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona, Florida. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thank you. You have an interesting background. Thanks. And uh, so so tell me your reaction to winning the the May Swenson Award. Well, I in some ways felt like I had come home. Um, Like many poets, I suspect, uh, we gravitate toward a certain kind of poet and community of poets, and we hope that someday that they'll affirm us. (laughs) And so I had sent a collection to uh, this contest a year ahead and came in as a finalist and um, was hoping I wouldn't be a bridesmaid for very much longer. So I was delighted to um, be awarded the Mae Swenson Prize because it's uh, a community of writers I've always deeply admired. And, of course, we're... we're, uh Right here in in May Swenson's hometown, so yeah. it's it's nice to have uh, the May Swenson Award because we get to meet some uh, some wonderful uh, poets. And the other thing is, this is the centennial of the May Swenson. That's uh, right. I'd forgotten that. Yes. Yes. So yeah. That, that's that's true. And Edward Field, who judged this this particular year's contest. Um, what, your thoughts on Edward Field? A remarkable man. Um, he's 89 years old now, and he has helped define American literature in so many ways. He um, spawned for so many of the New York schools of poetry. And uh, so I was also delighted to have his affirmation, uh, highly respected poet. Well, let's uh, jump in uh, here. Uh, maybe uh, before we even talk about the, the subject matter, you could read the first poem. Sure. Um, and, and then we'll talk about this. This is, uh, this is poetry from the real world, you might say. It is indeed. So the first poem is called 1-800-THE-LOST, and it begins with this epitaph. Acting quickly is critical. 74% of abducted children who are ultimately murdered are dead within three hours of the abduction. 1-800-THE-LOST. The weight of the receiver in my hand, the down bird in my palm first lifting you, the counselor's words rehearsed, a burlesque bland. The shift in time, the shift to looking through her lens. Today you are just one of two hundred lost. My eyes fix on our bright fence. I say your name, but you are no one new. Caught in an ancient book that she'll condense. I want her to discuss you in the present tense. I want the gods to stop pretending love calls the departed home. We called you with our various loves, had hope, hovered over still fields, made wind like the gods do before they come unhinged. Let their rage loose on an unresponsive yield. Fields gone deaf and dumb, unshaken fruitless ground, unmoved by a neighborhood of mothers who left their own to find you. Tables like mine, set. I want the gods to swallow their prayers whole, choke up my my child like the Olympians, a girl unbruised by her journey down their throats. I want her at my table, fruit, alms, that the gods I see can give or take, 
balm for the irritations I caused or they caused. Gifts between us, or perhaps among themselves, a girl that they'll barter away. I'm here, and I'm willing to talk or trade. That's M.B. McClatchy reading her poem, 1-800-THE LOST. That's from The Lame God, a collection which uh, won the Mae Swenson Poetry Award. Uh, and this is, it, it's a series of poems about an abduction and murder of a, of a young girl. It is. It gives a voice to parents, siblings, community, really, uh, when any child, girl or boy, is abducted, and in this case, murdered. So the narrative arc of the book uh, chronicles an abduction and murder. And the poems, many of them are in the mother's voice? Many are in the mother's voice. It's a voice I know best. And uh, as a poet, you want to go to your expertise. So, um, so how did you learn about that? This is, this is you're responding to a real abduction and murder, uh, real, real people here. I am. Uh, in the preface to the book, I say that the stories here are true. Um, as writers, we don't necessarily choose our topics. Our topics choose us. And uh, in my case, a couple of paths converged. I had uh, the experience of, through teaching the classics, which is what I do naturally, um, we examine ancient Greek stories all the time, and these sorts of things are universal. These stories of uh, children being treated badly uh, are universal. And uh, so I've had a chance in classes with my students to examine these kinds of questions, and so there was that. Uh, also, one of my dearest friends uh, happens to be a caseworker with uh, children and family, the Department of Children and Family. So there were a couple of things converging. There's more to it, but I'll give you a chance. Um, and this is, uh, I, I, in one way, it's very distressing. It's universal. You go back to the classics, mm -hmm. and we have these sorts of things happening. Very modern, too. Mm -hmm. And just about, about any newspaper you, you open. And there it is, abduction, murder of children. Yes. Uh, it's just something something about, you know, about, about humans, I guess. Right. And as someone who hasn't had that happen to me, um, you have to dig deep as a poet. Uh, in, the, in, in the preface to the poems, I say, I call these poems well poems, uh, because it became apparent to me that it wasn't going to be enough to stand at the top of the well and look down into the well at these people's grief. I was going to have to get down in there myself. So you have to, um, you have to dig deep uh, to write poems like this and give a voice to parents who may not be able to give a voice to the grief they're experiencing themselves. There is a poem in the book. Uh, it's actually the poem that generated the book. And there's a, a story attached to that, um, which we can get to if you want. Let, yeah, let's hear it. Um, yeah. Essentially, the story is that um, the book, the poem is called The Rape of Chrysippus. And um, it's a poem where uh, what caused me originally to write the poem was, again, like I was saying, my study of classics and teaching uh, the stories of Oedipus Rex and all the great playwrights and this sort of thing. And as initially, we were just looking at questions of justice. Those are universal questions, too. And um, when I wrote the poem, I was thinking of a particular case where uh, there's a man named Oedipus Rex, and uh, he's a man on whom the playwright Sophocles piled on the three highest crimes he could imagine. So he says that this will be a boy who will uh, marry his mother, he will kill his father, <laughs> And his own parents will try to kill him before that happens. So there we have the highest crimes in ancient Greece. Um, the background to the story is that this is punishment because um, this Oedipus Rex, his biological father, 
is um, is a sinner in the world of ancient Greece. Um, there was a moment in um, the life of this man, Oedipus Rex's father, his name is Laius, King Laius, where he was charged with simply the task of escorting a boy to the Panhellenic Games. And instead of escorting the boy there, uh, King Laius decided to take him to the side of the road and rape him and leave him for dead. And uh, it triggers questions of justice and uh, how could the gods watch and not, not, ch- not change that, not do anything about that. Apparently they did do something because it's the same King Laius who is going to have Oedipus Rex for his son. <laughs> so mm. it comes around. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't always see justice delivered in our own lifetime. So the poem was originally generated from those kinds of discussions. And um, after I wrote the poem, um, I recognized that I had made a connection accidentally to a real-life story. So uh, that led to more poems. Hmm. If you want, I can read the poem. Yes. So it's called The Rape of Chrysippus. For the rape of Chrysippus, King Laius suffered. The gods saw what he took, a young boy's chance to play in the Nemean games, to make his offerings to Zeus, to win his wreath of wild celery leaves, advance the Greek way, piety, honor, and strength. He raided their heaven, not just a small boy's frame. Their justice was what Laius came to dread, a son that would take his mother to bed a champion of the gods, an Oedipus. We called on the same gods on your behalf, asked for their twisted best, disease like a chimera to eat your lias piece by piece, a harpy who might wrap her tongue around his neck and play his game of breathing and not breathing that he made you play, Medusa's curse in stone and a golden ram to put you back together, bone by bone. So after I wrote that poem, um, I came upon a statement uh, from a mother in Massachusetts, and her name is Maggie Bish. And it turned out this mother was had a daughter named Molly Bish, beautiful 16-year-old girl, who she had dropped off for her lifeguard job one day and never saw her again. And um, as in some of, so many of these stories, it's three years later that Molly's bones are found just a few yards from their own home. And the statement that Molly's mom made was, she came home bone by bone, first her shin bone, then her skull. In the end, 26 of Molly's bones came home to us. And of course, I had ended my own poem, We'll Put You Back Together Bone by Bone. I put this this statement from uh, Molly's mom, I put it at the top of the poem and made it the epitaph of the poem. It became dedicated to her. These are the kinds of connections we make, and we don't even know we're making them when we write poetry. Yeah, yeah incredible. And, and also, I'm thinking, that reading several of these poems, listening to you to tell about this, for someone who hasn't gone through it, it it's unimaginable mm-hmm. in a way. And you, you, you just can't imagine how someone, a parent, would deal with this. When I called, uh, eventually I communicated with Molly's mom. I sent, uh, the, the poem actually won an award, and I sent the uh, poem to Molly's mom um, with some money toward a foundation that she had started. And um, got a call from Molly's mom, and it was a wonderful conversation, made a great connection. And uh, she actually was the person who encouraged me to keep writing. Uh, she 
appreciated that I gave her a voice uh, and um, in no way dissuaded me. So I felt very motivated uh, by her strength and resilience. And um, so more poems came. Hmm. What ha- Has she seen the whole the book? Is Not she, yet. It's okay. in transit. Oh, okay. It's on right. her way. Right. What do you, what do you, why do you think she encouraged you? She's a remarkably strong woman. I think some of this is unique to her. Uh, she said, keep talking about this, keep writing. She did say you gave a voice uh, to my grief, uh, and uh, I think she appreciated that. I think we appreciate any situation where somebody can can help us understand what we're going through by articulating it for us. This is what art does in so many ways. It, uh, it, remi- it, it helps inform us of what it is we're experiencing. So... Uh, I think she appreciated that, and I mm-hmm. hope I hope she appreciates the book. And as you mentioned, that's that is one thing art can do, right? Yes. Give, give a voice, yes. articulate something. Perhaps you're going through that you don't you don't quite you can't quite express it. It does. Um, in the preface to the book, I actually mention this, talk about this idea, and and say that there's a poet named Wordsworth who says that the subject of our poetry need not come from our lives, but it it has to become our lives. Mm. And this, this comes from a, a sort of regimen of uh, witness in the world that we, we com- commit ourselves to. So it's witness and it's, it's research. You've got to get your facts right. Right. <laughs> and the, as you're talking about this, let me just read this paragraph. When parents lose – this is quoting you – when parents lose a child to abduction and murder – and then descend into a well of grief, and you mentioned this well uh, previously, the poet writes as a way to call them until it becomes clear that she must descend into the well herself to know the water level there, the damp walls, the underbelly of this abomination. You have to descend. I do indeed. In, in a way. So what is that yes. like? Well, for a poet, descending into a well uh, can mean a couple of things. For me, it means... Um, abiding by poetic forms, which is what I use a lot. Um, I tend to write in forms of sonnets and sestinas and even lullabies. There's a lullaby in here uh, because it gives me an opportunity to kind of put on the, 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 the armor that I think a poet needs to face difficult and, and to some, some case, unknown subjects. Uh, so by writing in form, um, I... I give myself the opportunity to not think necessarily rationally about a topic, but to move to another level of consciousness and even in surrendering to the form of, say, a sonnet, I have to answer to the rhyme, I have to answer to the meter, and I'm so busy with that preoccupation that I I don't necessarily worry so much about whether I'm getting it right that we address later. <laughs> right, right. It's no good unless we get our facts right. Right. So descending into a well for me means um, abiding by certain poetic forms that allow me to think on another level of consciousness and to make that connection with the human condition that I think is spiritual, actually. Um, there's a kind of channeling that goes on there. Uh, poets talk about this all the time. The poet Yeats says, it's when I'm most alone and working at my desk that I'm most with other human beings. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that inevitable, I think, spiritual uh, transcendent connection we make. But, of course, you're in this book, you're channeling to the darkest part of the 
<laughs> the human condition, right? Edward Field, he said in reading these poems, he had to set it aside every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you went through, uh, you know, channeling that, that very dark part of, of human nature. Yeah. I mean, I th- I think that there there is, of, of course, that darkness. The subject is tough. Um, but inevitably, uh, again, I think the, the forms, the art rescues us and and in a sense, buoys us so that uh, I never have, I, although the poems were sometimes very difficult for me to write and um, emotionally kind of tough, uh, but even so, uh, there's, I think, a kind of grandeur and celebration that comes in recognizing that you were able to connect with another human being on that person's experiences that you did not have. A lot of people tell us we can't do this, <laughs> but I don't believe that. Right. <laughs> I think right. in a lot of ways that's what art does. Right. We're talking with M.B. McClatchy, who is a poet and uh, has won the latest uh, Mae Swenson Poetry Award for her collection, The Lame God. It's a collection of poems about the abduction and murder of, uh, of a girl, Molly Bish, to be specific. And uh, is, or, yeah, that's not, not true. Oh, uh, well, it's, it's a, uh, certainly Molly Bish's story inspired the book. Oh, I see. Um, this is more general. Yes, it is. More yeah. general. Okay. It really looks at okay. the phenomenon of children who have been abducted uh, and in, in many cases murdered. And then it looks at the resilience and the reactions of communities, siblings, parents, so many people who are touched by these experiences. And in your preface, you you talk about, in, in essence, I don't know, dedicate is the, is the right word, but uh, you, you talk about, um, you know, Adam Walsh and, and many others, uh, mm-hmm. Amber Hagerman, for whom the Amber Alert was was named, roughly 2,000 Mollies and Adams and Ambers, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned the three girls in, I guess you're mentioning Cleveland. You don't mention a, a city. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be for... Uh, Elizabeth Smart here in here in Utah, mm-hmm. whose story ended uh, more happily. A remarkable girl. Yeah. And uh, but you say especially for the child who's not yet pried open the bolted door, borrowed a neighbor's phone, and announced to a nine one one operator, "I've been kidnapped and I've been missing and I'm here." Mm-hmm. So th- this is this, this is unfortunately children go missing every day. Right, and I think it's in, in moments like that when we, at least for me, I make the connection between poetry and prayer. Um, the because we're taking the time to commit to the work of, of creating art, in a sense, I think we're praying over a subject. We're, we're hoping that some, some sort of human deliverance will, will come from this. And it's, it, it can be the deliverance of giving a voice to those who are grieving, or it can be anything else that has to do with the human condition. Mm-hmm. This, I think, is what art does for us. Uh, M.B. McClatchy uh, was in Utah recently for appearances at Utah State University. Sponsored uh, Utah State by the USU English Department at Brigham Young University and uh, to the uh, Utah Book Fair, I believe. Or M.B. McClatchy uh, did an appearance as well. Uh, by the way, the uh, the book, The Lame God, the collection that won the May Swenson uh, Poetry Award is uh, published by USU Press. And it is now out and available. We're going to take a br- brief break. When we come back, more with M.B. McClatchy and The Lame God. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Extension for Age and Youth programs, assisting youth in acquiring knowledge, building character, and developing life skills in a learning environment. Information at utah4h.org. We're back with uh, M.B. McClatchy, who is a poet 
and uh, has uh, written a collection of poems called The Lame God. It's won the uh, Mae Swenson Poetry Award, and that's out from USU Press. She was in Utah recently for appearances at Utah State University, for the English Department at USU, for uh, Brigham Young University, and at the uh, Utah Book Fair. Uh, she teaches writing and humanities at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona. And we'll get it a little bit later into her uh, very interesting biography. She was a speechwriter for a state senator, reporter for a daily newspaper, magazine editor, reader, and book reviewer. And uh, she studied at uh, Harvard University, Brown University, Williams College, has an MFA in creative writing from Goddard uh, College. And interestingly, is a part of the Corvid Writers, which we'll get into talking about a little bit later. Uh, back to the lame god, which, uh, to remind listeners, uh, is about the uh, the abduction and murder uh, of a girl, uh, inspired by a real case, and then it's uh, standing in for the voice of the the parents of uh, of so many parents who who have gone through this. Unfortunately, I was struck by your uh, beginning to the the rescue, which is, I believe, the second poem. Okay, and you quote uh, John Walsh. Mm-hmm perhaps the most famous father of a missing child who has who's gone on to become an activist. I wonder if you could maybe maybe read that introduction, the introductory quote, and then the poem. Sure. So the introductory comment from John Walsh is, uh, this is a response, actually, that he gave to some news reporters who asked him when his son's body had been found, did he feel now he had some closure? And he said this comment. He said, it's not about closure. It's about justice. So I wrote this poem with him in mind. It's called The Rescue. And by the way, the, the poem uh, sort of um, looks at a, a, a real news case in the panhandle of Florida through John Walsh's eyes. I wondered how would John Walsh think about this case. And the case was of a, an uncle who rescued his nephew. It was a really pretty miraculous rescue uh, who, where the, the nephew was being attacked by a shark in the panhandle. So there's a story there, and I'm wondering how John Walsh would see that. So I give a voice to him. So today in the news, miraculous rescue. An uncle drags a shark to shore to save his near-dead nephew. A bull of a shark, the arm that it tore from the boy when he waved for help, fueled the beast's palate. Its tail in the uncle's grip, a blur of blood claret and kelp. The husks from his palms, a grim and edible kale. I want a shark that I can wrestle and make it spit you out, to make it yearn for its strength, to thrash about as I nestle its nose in my grip. I want to turn you loose from a palpable place, a well, a shed, a jaw. I want the monster to face me and beg for the law. And that's, I guess that's a, that's a response that any parent would have, probably not many you, you mentioned, for example, in the case of uh, Molly Bish, her, her disappearance three years later that that her bones are found. Right. Although still the case is, is alive and open, still looking for uh, following leads. This is what we do. We follow yeah. leads. And a lot of cases mm-hmm. go on like that maybe forever. Mm-hmm. And Molly had a sister, as many of these people do. Uh, siblings are affected. Uh, one of the poems is called Lullaby for Her Brother. Uh, although Molly had a sister, there are the cases address for siblings. So it's a, it's a large community of us who are, who are coping. Mm. You mentioned you have, you have a friend who's a caseworker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine you've talked about, you know, in, in general, 
uh, about these sorts of cases. What, what does she tell you? She's a remarkable woman, also r- remarkably resilient. Uh, and she's, she tells me about uh, children who have not, necess- not always been um, abducted, but some who have run away uh, for a safer place. And um, in many ways, I think of her as, as a guardian uh, to these children. Um, she shares with me the complexity of reuniting families and how dearly she wants to see that happen. Uh, so she's a, she's a remarkable person who has uh, opened up to me, shared her heart with me. So it's given me a way in. Hmm. And uh, I certainly dedicate this book to her as well. Her name is Ted Kucinich, and she's in my preface. Hmm. Um, Edward Field, in his uh, foreword to your book, mm-hmm. he talks about how the Inuit uh, have taught that the right words actually make things happen. He says, in spite of W.H. Auden's uh, dictum that they don't. I'm not familiar with that dictum, but uh, apparently it's there. <laughs> and then she, then he says that you do make things happen, and that is give a voice to those too grief-stricken uh, grief to speak, and refuses to allow us to suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could respond to that. Yeah, he has a... Um, uh, a sort of more maybe militant take on it than I do. <laughs> um, I'm more interested in letting art connect where it wants to connect. And in my case, you know, you follow the lead as an artist. You follow where the poems take you, where the subjects take you. As I said earlier, I don't think you get to pick your subjects all the time. Uh, so I, I didn't see this book growing until it began to grow. And... Uh, saw it as a wonderful opportunity to reach out to other human beings and if I could, especially in a difficult situation like this, give them a voice. Um, Auden's quote is is a great one. He says, poetry um, makes nothing happen. What he means is we take language, such a simple medium, and create great revolutions with it. (laughs) And hopefully the revolutions that art creates are conversions of heart or um, connections between people with unshared experiences. And mm-hmm. so it gives us that chance to reach out. Mm-hmm. Do you have another poem that uh, you'd like to read? Uh, sure. Um, and and at, some, at some point I'll have you read the, the title poem, but okay. uh, maybe in sequence you'd like to. Sure. I'll read a poem. Read it's called Apology. And this goes to um, what basically every parent feels, I think, who has... Um, missed a child for even just a few moments and you realize how we, we take so much for granted when, we, when they leave us. They go out to school and we, we don't see that as a possible last goodbye. So this poem is called Apology. For the minutes, hours, days that once with a girlish yearning I wanted back. For the slap in the car when you were two. For trusting your safe return not misty, missing you. For trusting the gods for my second-rate circumspection, for trusting the odds, for the tremor of heat in the small of your hand in mine, a fear of strangers, of shadows, the dark, my little bank swallow, I called you, for this city of sandbanks and soundproof walls, for teaching you to love the same, the thief and the devout, for teaching you not to shout, for us still uncovering your terror, layer by layer, for this sputtering sound of real prayer. 
Yeah, that's uh, that, that captures it well, I think. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that emotion that, that parents have uh, must make the, I don't know, the terror, the, the, the loss. Yeah. And sort of the ongoing drip, drip, drip of, of, of you know, a, a crisis that never quite comes to the end of a crisis. Right. I think you're right about this. And many people talk about this in my research. Uh, parents talk about how what started out as such an ordinary day suddenly took such a terrible turn. Um, a child goes missing. In my case, I, I misplaced my child for a few minutes one day. And suddenly I was that Greek goddess killing the crops and saying, no one moves until we find this boy. Uh, so I can't imagine if that continued uh, for a whole day and then several days and then the rest of your life. So we're, we're pretty strong, we human beings. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you sometime, some way you have to survive, right? Right. We do indeed. Um, but things can never go back to normal. No. So, so you have some sort of a, I don't know, horrible new normal? Do you... You, you know, added, uh, John Walsh said it's not about closure, it's about justice, but you, you've, you've got to get to a place where you can go forward, right? Right, and look what John Walsh did, and look what so many of these remarkable parents do, and children too, siblings. They, they turn that grief into something productive. Um, this, is, this is a Greek concept. This is a Buddhist concept. This is, this is all over in all of the faith traditions. Um, the notion that as long as I'm standing, I, I can still win this fight against evil. And um, so we do. And I think this is a remarkably beautiful aspect of the human, the human race. Yeah. Now, I think you, in this, you, you will have contemplated the perpetrator. Um, and I, I wonder what that was like. You know, it goes to a very dark place. I did. Um, there's a poem in here. Uh, called At the Grieving Parents' Meeting, actually, where I contemplated the murderer. Um, and uh, it's, it's not easily done. Uh, we, we have to think individually about our own children's fears and how that perpetrator answered every fear of that child. Mm -hmm. So that's what his makeup is. <laughs> and um, so in this poem, I addressed that, uh, how if I could have had that person in front of me, I would have decomposed him. <laughs> I can give it to you if you oh, want. Yes, yes, certainly. So it's called At the Grieving Parents Meeting. In the parish hall of St. Anthony's Catholic Church, pictures of murdered children in our hands, we huddle in a sphere of folding chairs and a flickering fluorescent light. Some lean near the coffee and coffee cake that each week has the same flowery smell of sympathy, and each week the same sour taste. By the tissues, a painted soapstone statuette, our patron saint. Oh, the watches and keys and gloves that appeared at your feet, a ruse that my mother relied on to make me believe that our smallest petitions are heard, that events with the proper appeals can be reversed, that almost anything lost can be retrieved. As a girl, I chanted your name while I followed the trail. Pockets, under the bed, under the sofa cushions, pockets again. Something's lost and can't be found. Please, St. Anthony, look around. When it didn't turn up, I brought you coiled vines, like the petals I bring to my daughter's room, as if to stir up stale air, or as if to confirm I was still yours and you were mine and the search would resume. 
Look at the priestess of talismans I have become. Her saint card from First Communion in my purse. Lodestones for paperweights at work. For good luck, a horseshoe-shaped necklace under my shirt. The crescent shape of the sacred moon goddess in Peru or the bow of the Blessed Mother's cradling arm. Arch like the threshold of her sacred vulva. Twine like the helix of lovers. Look at the virtuoso that was finally rebirthed, who should use this ring of linked hands, not for fellowship or grace, not to make my peace on earth, not to lay my gifts at your feet and give up this search, but to summon the face she petitioned and conjure a curse. Hmm. And these fears, these are among the worst, right? The very worst, not only for children, but for parents. Right. And for, and for all of us. Mm-hmm. And for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the ongoing um, existence where you have to now assume a new role as parents, this is also something I address in the book. Um, the kind of repeated, uh, that regimen you're talking about of learning this new role of the grieving parent, then the furious parent, and then the, then the parent on a mission. And then the foundation-building parent, this is what George, John Walsh is. Um, this is something that strikes me as quite remarkable about human beings, that, again, as long as we're on our feet, we can win. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the poems I, I, I have is titled On uh, the Retrieval, and it's just all about that. Um, mm. Well, let's hear it. By, by the way, is that, is that the arc that you found? You said the, you know, the you shock and then anger and then... Well, and grief, uh, and then you, and, you know, then you, then you have a mission. Well, eventually, the difference I think between writing poems and then writing a book is what you're talking about. That the writing of the poems, you're simply following your nose. You're you're going where the poems take you. And uh, when it comes to writing the book, you then have to think in those terms you're talking about, Tom, of the narrative arc. Uh, and you want to be careful, I think, to not compromise the integrity of the poems at that level, um, to force them into some story and to let them have their vibrancy mm. page by page. Because this is something that a lot of poets talk about. Yevtushenko, my, one of my favorite uh, Russian poets, had a lot of time in prison to contemplate these issues of, of poetry and art and its role in our lives. And he was actually one of the people who demonstrated to me that poetry can save our lives. It saved his. But uh, So this is, this is something you're very careful with when you begin to organize the poems as units into a collection. And that's when I actually started to see the collection. Um, and again, you don't start out thinking, I'm going to write a book. You just follow the trail. <laughs> and, so. and not imposing that, I guess, in that way you, re- you reflect life as well, because life isn't that... Well, that's beautiful. Isn't that, I agree. Isn't that clean? You know, isn't I agree that, with you. It doesn't I think have that arc. You know, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it, it is nice if we can resemble that in yeah. our books as well. Not yeah. make it so tightly tied up that we don't want to button things up too well. Right. Yeah, nice. I think that's great. So this poem is called "The Retrieval," and it goes to what you've been talking about. Here again, the way you used to wake us, rouse us with that impatient stare, a stubborn, fair-haired fifth grader. You make the same requests. I say them with you. But isn't this what happens when one of us brings water to the dead? This private shift to living only sometimes with the living? 
eight months among the missing, and you come back padding back in your white socks and jeans. Specter of grief, we locked away before it made us more dry-mouthed and speechless than our counterparts in dreams. Grief, like light encounters in a half-sleep, your moist face in a morning mirror, and how each night you casually resume at every threshold to every listing room that awkward lean, the one you would do when you could not ask but knew that we could help, your bony shoulder barely touching the wall, your right foot crossing the other, so young and so old, so much the pose of one who is neither coming nor going. It's difficult to know why we should wake, Still, every day we rise like guardians ex officio, like gatekeepers to a city of passing shades, each one a new acquaintance with your face, each one a new petition for deliverance of the innocent and quaking. Hmm. What's the title again? That's called The Retrieval. The Retrieval, yeah. That's M.B. McClatchy reading from her uh, collection of poems, The Lame God, which won the uh, Mae Swenson Poetry Award. And um, she was in Utah recently to give uh, appearances at uh, Utah State University, sponsored by the English Department at Utah State, uh, Brigham Young University, and at the uh, Utah Book Fair. And uh, by the way, this is out now, The Lame God, uh, published by USU Press. More following a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crown Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering lunch items including a three-cheese panini with rosemary orange chutney and a cranberry jalapeno chicken salad. You're listening to Access Utah. We're back with M.B. McClatchy, a poet and author of the Winner of the, uh, she's the winner of the Mae Swenson uh, Poetry Award for her collection of poems called The Lame God. This is out from USU Press. She was in Utah recently to give appearances in Salt Lake, the Utah Book Fair, in Logan to Utah State University, and uh, in Provo to uh, Brigham Young University. Um, and the uh, collection of poems, if you're just joining us, is uh, about the abduction and murder of uh, of a girl, and uh, so she's uh, responding to some. Uh, so very, well, deep, you could call them the, the themes. And unfortunately, uh, many parents, uh, every day, uh, children go go missing. She's uh, giving voice to, to those who don't have a voice. So what she says poetry can, can do. I wonder if you would uh, read it. It's a brief poem. It jumped out at me. It's, it's called Bingo Night for sure. uh, Missing and Exploited Children. Sure. And maybe it's, it just gave me some insight into mm-hmm. into these parents' lives. And this this goes to what you were talking about earlier, Tom. That um, we have to keep moving, keep walking. And um, so this is called Bingo Night for Missing and Exploited Children. Before we went underground, before you fell through a gyre with no sound, if one piece were unwound, if you had run, if we had looked for you sooner, if you had screamed, if the gods had intervened. Nascent, still blooming, the orchid on your windowsill, a thrill of color. Gone, 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 gone. Phantom limb. If the soul leaves the body, we did not feel it go. Nothing and everything cloistered in stone. 
omens we left for others, ripples on a resting pond, the whistling of a breeze, the imprint on the ovaries. And it's it's just that juxtaposition, I guess, that got got me about bingo night, and uh, and you know, as we've been talking about, life has to go on, but mm-hmm. it, it's it's has a different color, doesn't it? It's just it really does. different meaning. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's such a, a strange combination of ideas: bingo night and <laughs> exploited children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder. I've, I've talked a bit about the the title poem. It would now be a good a good time to read that. Sure. And you'll have to set this up. Help us with our classics. Sure, you, you don't you. need too much. Um, and um, this this poem is um, uh, based on the story of uh, one of the Greek gods. His name was Hephaestus, and he was a, a lame god. His mother rejected him for that, but he he rose up against her. And um, so it's about counterinsurgency to some extent and the kind of counterinsurgency we can use as our own model. Um, the Greeks also have a little fun with uh, their gods. They, they love the ambiguity that their gods are there, but uh, they have their own problems. <laughs> and this leaves us to our resources to help ourselves. This is an idea that translates in almost all of the faiths, though, that uh, we will be helped if we help ourselves. So the lame god. He walked on thin legs, as Homer put it. Hephaestus, born with a shriveled foot that so humiliated Hera, she threw her son into the sea. Once tossed from high Olympus, he turned his frailty into grit, counter-insurgency. A terra firma as opposed to the water she dreamed of. His exile made him face his kind, build her a catbird seat a throne with a trick release. In the end, he hobbled, motherless castaway, into their pantheon. What was it made the Greeks admit him into their heavenly suite? In their myths, his wit and craftsmanship. But there was plenty of that to go around. A twisted foot telegraphed a twisted mind, but not if he carried out heroic deeds. Too hard, any mother could see, a balancing act. Still, the symmetry, the playful scale of damned and apple of their eyes, twins on a coin, a champion form, what men could learn to love, what mothers wished was never born. On this city bus, gods sit in rows. Some absently stare ahead, some drop their heads to doze. One moves his lips as his hand passes over black beads. One scans a tabloid for discounts, celebrities. I am looking for him, the mugshot, the lineups near match, the newspaper likeness, the witnesses sketch, the rope in his pocket they said he unwound from your neck, the man with the radical limp and the crown on his head. We are in the kingdom of counterinsurgency. Since you came home smaller and cold, we have settled in among these forms, horrors that are apparently not horrors, but the foreground to a god power untapped. Mercy, a tide that expelled you like foreign matter. Faith, a dog that followed your fading scent. Forgiveness, a mother boarding a bus her body buoyed by the crush of other bodies. Do not worry, daughter. 
We have not, we are not leaving our watch or showing our cards, just changing the guard. That's the title poem from the collection The Lame God by M.B. McClatchy, read by the author there. Before we leave uh, The Lame God, we just have a few minutes left. I want to talk about a few other things. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about About the book? About the book, yeah. I'm going to let the poems speak for themselves, okay. I think, beyond that. Thank you so much for letting me share them. All right. Uh, let's turn to maybe the, I'm interested in the juxtaposition of some of the things you have done with with poetry, which is now what you do. You teach classics, you teach humanities, but to write poetry. Mm-hmm. So speechwriter for a state senator, a reporter for daily newspaper, magazine editor, reader, and book reviewer. And, and I don't know, I'm, I'm having trouble meshing all of those parts. It, it apparently has in you. <laughs> um, all great experiences, and one preparing me for the next one. This is the heroic, this is the story of the hero, not that I'm calling myself a hero in any way. Um, but uh, one challenge prepares you for the next, and that's how I regard that journey. But uh, wonderful opportunities. Uh, as a speechwriter for uh, a senator in Boston, I learned to uh, speak a little bit of Italian and write in phonetics <laughs> when I couldn't. <laughs> um, I learned a lot about uh, the connection between politics and, uh, and culture, and uh, I learned that every day is election day. And um, that prepared me in a lot of ways uh, to be a newspaper reporter and uh, saw almost instantly that that was not my field, uh, that I wanted to write more lyrical stories. Uh, and um, my managing editor made it clear to me that that is not what we do in the newspaper business. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, while facts are deeply important uh, to uh, tell a true story uh, in art as well, that wasn't necessarily my first my first choice. But all wonderful experiences. Um, as an editor for a couple of sports magazines as well, um, great opportunities to find out about different industries. And in every case, uh, we don't necessarily see it happening at the time, I don't think, on our journeys. But in every case, uh, setting ourselves up for the next part of the journey. Mm-hmm. So very good stuff. Editor of sports magazines. Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've written... Um, textbook supplement for humanities course called Primary Sources. Yes. Classics are important to you. Very, yes. Um, the, the book uh, came out a couple of years ago, and um, it came out, the book generated, was generated from my teaching. I kept, I was so unhappy with having to combine so many different texts that were only halfway making it for me. So I finally said, darn it, I'm just going to write my own book for my students. So Primary Sources is exactly what it says, uh, unfiltered look at Cicero and unfiltered look at Socrates, and uh, at least uh, unfiltered except for the fact they're not reading in Greek and they're not reading in Latin. We do some of that too. Uh, And um, a wonderful chance for them to make their own decisions about Cicero rather than an editor doing it for them. So, yeah. And I love, you know, I I feel so blessed to be able to teach in the humanities, especially my field in in Greek and Roman and in the classics in general. It it never ceases to amaze me how smart those Greeks were, how much they knew about human psychology and that tension between fate and free will, uh, the things that are given to us that we don't have much power in determining. The question is never in the Greek story. Your, your story of your life is never what happened to you. It's always how are you going to deal with that. Mm. <laughs> so. And you teach, interestingly, at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona, Florida. So you're teaching 
pilots? Are you? Yes, pilots, engineers, physicists, chemists, um, very smart young people, and uh, and very receptive to the questions we look at in the humanities. Uh, They're focused in a way that your typical undergraduate may not be focused in some of these colleges. They're career-minded and very willing to work. So I feel very happy to have this chance to work with them. Final question. You've you've spent a lot of time with the Lame God, uh, you, you know, reaching. Once it gets published, you've you've probably long since moved on to something else. The authors, authors do. But thinking about that experience, the arc of that experience, do you come out yourself changed yeah. in any way? What what? Absolutely. Yes. Um, and and, you know, as in life, one book triggers another one. Um, the next book I'm working on right now is an educational memoir, and um, it's uh, in-house right now, right, hopefully published soon. Uh, and it uh, is about a remarkable educator who I had in the fourth grade of all grades. When other students were diagramming sentences, she was teaching us the Roman rhetoric. Mm. Uh, so she was a wonderful person who inspired me deeply. And for all the education I've 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 had, uh, I find myself drawing on her so often. So it is one person at a time that affects us, and so this is in many ways an homage to her. Another book I have is a collection of poems uh, called Advantages of Believing. I'm shopping that around, so I don't know if anyone's going to like that yet. (laughs) Hoping. That's just a chapbook. A shorter book is what we call in the poetry world a chapbook. Well, congratulations on the uh, May Swenson Prize for The Lame God. Thank you. The Lame God is the collection that's out from USU Press. And uh, M.B. McClatchy was in Utah recently uh, for appearances at Utah State University with the English Department at Utah State, uh, BYU, and uh, in Salt Lake with the Utah Book Fair. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For producers uh, Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George. Offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month. Featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters. Details at greenvalleyspa.com.